Well, good morning, church family. If you will take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're finding that, I, I just have it on my heart this morning to pray for everyone in our church family and everyone that our church family is connected to, uh, to pray for those who are grieving. At the front of that list are those of us, and hopefully all of us, who are grieving the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I'm also thinking of those who are grieving because they've lost someone they love during this COVID pandemic. I'm thinking about those who have lost their jobs. I'm thinking about those who are grieving because they have someone they care about who's in the hospital right now. And... Uh, you know, the scripture makes it clear that God is near those who are brokenhearted. And it also says that when we are carrying burdens and cares, that what he wants from us is to cast those cares, to cast that grief back at him. And so if you're grieving today, I just want you to know that your church family is with you. We're thinking of you. You are in our minds and hearts. And I want to pray for, for you now. And, and I want to use the prayer of one of the psalmists from Psalm 40. So would you close your eyes right there where you are and, and, and pray with me. The words of the psalmist, Psalm 40, verse 11. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to concentrate on verses 13 through all of chapter 3. This morning, let's start together. Chapter two, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. 700 years before the apostle Paul and his missionary friend Silas and Timothy were born, 700 years before the Thessalonians were born, the prophet Isaiah spoke out these words, that when God sends out his own word, it always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And that's what Paul is saying has happened to the Thessalonians. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active. And Paul is saying, this is what happened to you Thessalonians. When we came and we told you about Christ, it was not a TED talk. It was not wise and persuasive words. It wasn't just human opinion. It was the very word of God. And when he says the word of God, what he has in his mind is all of the Hebrew scripture, the life, 
ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Christ, and the now what of those first believers as they went about inspired by the Spirit. He says, when we told you about all of these things, it had its effect. And what was its effect? When the Word of God goes out, two things happened. Two S words, salvation and sanctification. When Paul shared the news of Christ, prophesied Messiah, resurrected King, it resulted in the Thessalonians being, as he writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. They received salvation. And then that word is living and active in them to set them apart. As they've been transferred into God's kingdom, they take on kingdom lifestyles, kingdom thinking, kingdom living. Salvation and sanctification, the word of God was at work among them. Verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out as well. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Paul says to the Thessalonians, listen, you're following in the footsteps of those who were persecuted before you starting with Peter, James, John, the original apostles, those first believers in Jerusalem, Judea. They were persecuted. But then that persecution passed to the apostle Paul and his missionary friends as they go out into the Gentile world. Just as he had experienced in Thessalonica, they were chased out of town. They go to Berea. They're chased from Berea on into Athens. Paul says, now that persecution has been aimed at you, Thessalonians. And, and, and he says that the wrath of God is at hand. It's prepared for these people. It's come upon them at last. Now remember from two weeks ago when the scripture talks about the wrath of God, don't associate it with rage, out of control, spewing anger, uh, of lost all sense of reason and purpose. The, biblically, the wrath of God is the justice of God expressed. So this is an important thing that the Apostle Paul is doing for the Thessalonians. It's similar to what we see in the Psalms. King David in one Psalm is being chased from place to place to place before he was king, actually, by the previous king, King Saul. He's not done anything wrong. King Saul has lost his mind, and he wants nothing more than to kill David. And David writes in his Psalms this consistent thing. God, here is what is happening to me. Here's the person that is doing it. Here are a few recommendations that I make that you would do to this person. But always at the end, there's this release. David saying, I trust you, God. Even though all of these things are true, I trust myself with you. And not only that, I trust what this person is doing to me, also to you. It probably won't take a lot of thinking for you to remember back to someone who has hurt you. And if that's true, we should take up the model that Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians to live out, the model of the psalmist. God, here, here's what's happened to me. It's real, it's deep, it's meaningful, it's hurtful. Here's the person who's done that. 
Even we could have some fun with some recommendations to God that what God might do to that person in response to what they've done to us. But at the end, God, I trust myself to you. And I even trust this enemy to you. That's why Paul reminds the Thessalonians, yes, you're following in the footsteps of our persecution, but but make no mistake, don't pick up the weapons of bitterness and hate because God is watching. His wrath, his justice has come upon them at last. Then he says in the next verse, verse 17, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We can see how much these three missionaries love the Thessalonians. He uses the word orphan. It means to be cut off. In in just a few verses before, remember from last week, he used pictures like when we were among you, we were like a nursing mother. Uh, We were like a father. He, He loves them very much. And now he's feeling the grief, the pain of being separated from them. Then he goes on. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. So the reason that they've been cut off from the Thessalonians is because Satan is at work through this persecution. He was chased from Thessalonica, chased from Berea. Now he's far away. He cannot easily come to visit them. Verse 19. For that which is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So remember, he he talks about the return of Christ consistently through this letter. It is the thread that sews 1 Thessalonians together, that Jesus is returning. If I had one wish, one prayer that I knew that God would answer on behalf of everyone who calls Bayou City home, it would be that the truth, the fact of the promise that Jesus has made, that in the same way that he left, the angel said, he will return. And when he returns as Lord, he will make a new heaven, new earth. He will judge the living and the dead. He will throw death and Satan into a lake of fire, doing away with them permanently. And we will live on this renewed earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ himself. If I had one prayer that I knew could be answered, it would be that God would take that truth, which many of us know in the back row of our mind, and move it to the front row of our mind. I think this is the primary difference between the first generation of Christians and our current generation of Christians. They lived believing, hoping, praying that Jesus would return at any moment. I mean, even as I mentioned last week, one of the things that Paul has to address in 1 Thessalonians is that the Thessalonians are so convinced that Jesus is going to return that they retire. What's the point in working? Jesus could come back. He's going to take care of me. I don't need any money to buy food. He'll give me food. I don't need a place to live. I mean, he already promised me in John chapter 14 that he's going to be building a house for me. What do I have to work? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Even though we're waiting, even though we're expecting, we still are going to work. But the apostle Paul is so convinced that Jesus is going to return that he holds off getting married. And then he encourages other people. Anybody who can resist the urge to get married should. Why does he tell the Corinthians to do that? So that they can be singularly focused on spreading the good news that Jesus has been crucified and resurrected from the dead. And most of us didn't give any thought this week that Jesus could return at any moment. And and that's like having a, a car with a V8 engine and no gas. 
That's living, like living in your dream house, but your dream house has no roof. Paul reminds them over and over again, Christ is coming. And what does he hope when Christ comes? What's going to be his glory and joy? It's going to be the Thessalonians. Now, this is a real clarifying idea, isn't it? What would you feel good about taking pride in when you are looking Jesus eye to eye? I know our accomplishments are out the window. Um, I know our self-righteousness is out the window when we see what true righteousness really looks like with our own eyes. What is Paul going to be taking a little holy pride in? That the Thessalonians are there. That he'll be able to look over and see that they are happy and ready and faithful. I want you to imagine what that might be like for you to be in the presence of Christ. And I want you to imagine looking to the right and left. Who in your life do you hope that you will see there? And it could be whoever comes into your mind right now that God has called you as the agent of the gospel so that that person will be there. They're his glory and joy even in the presence of of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and our co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage, and encourage you in the faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. So Paul expresses his concern for the, the Thessalonians. His concern is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower and the seed, which I mentioned last week. He was concerned that the seed, which is the word of God, would have gone into the soil, the rocky ground, Jesus called it. And the, the plant springs up. It comes to life. It sprouts. And Paul had seen the faith of the Thessalonians sprout. But in Jesus' parable... Because it's rocky soil, when suffering comes, when hardship comes, when pain comes, the plant withers and dies. And Paul is concerned that this might have happened to the Thessalonians because of this persecution that had been aimed at Paul and his friends is now being aimed at them. <clears throat> he hoped, he hoped that they, their faith would not have withered and died. Verse five, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. He's referred to Satan earlier, and now he's referring to Satan as the, the tempter. And when we think about temptation, we think about Satan having plans for our lives. I think most of the time we are exclusively thinking of it in terms of behavioral sins. Satan is trying to trap me to lust. Satan is trying to trap me into greed. Satan is trying to trap me into gossip or hate of some kind. And I believe that that is absolutely true. But it is important to zoom out to maybe see Satan's bigger scheme, which is for you to abandon your faith. Satan has already accomplished this with one of Paul's friends we know named Demas. Demas was one of the missionary uh, partners of the Apostle Paul. Here in First Thessalonians, it's Paul and 
Timothy and Silas, but in other places it was Paul and Demas and Silas. But in 2 Timothy, Paul will write to Timothy and say, actually, Demas has abandoned me, abandoned the faith because of his love for the present world, meaning Demas didn't keep his eye on the eternal prize. He got distracted by some temporary prizes. And what happened? He left the faith altogether. So yes, Satan definitely wants you to lust and and be greedy and gossip about people and hate people. But more than that, he wants you to do those things so much that you'll abandon the faith altogether. We see that he did this with Job. What does he want Job to do in the first few chapters of that Old Testament book? To lose his faith in God. As his wife says, to curse God and then die. This was his strategy with Adam and Eve. He wants them to lose faith that God is looking out for them, that God is working for their best interest. Uh, it's, uh, it's known that uh, around two-thirds of Christian high school students, when they transition to college, two-thirds or more will leave the Christian faith. Some of those come back but some of those don't. In fact, that may be your story, and and, and probably all of us know somebody whose story that is. And I think one of the reasons, and I'm sure there are many reasons that that happens, is because a, a church does a really good job of helping high school students be prepared to resist specific temptations from Satan. Temptations like lust and and don't drink and don't do this and do that, those specific temptations. But we don't do a very good job of preparing students for his larger scheme. Hey, Satan is setting a trap for you when you go to college. Not that you would go to a frat party, but he's setting a trap for you that you would walk away from the faith entirely. It is so easy to be so focused on the trees that we forget that Satan is also trying to burn down the forest. And Paul is concerned that this might have been what happened to the Thessalonians. So they send Timothy from Athens over to Thessalonica to get a report. And let's see what happens in verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is so excited that the Thessalonians are doing great. They're keeping the faith. They're they're living out what those three missionaries had taught them and what those three missionaries had modeled for them. And because the Thessalonians are doing so well, it is bolstering the faith of the Apostle Paul and Silas to hear Timothy's great report. But notice at the end, verse 10, he says, Nine day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now remember, this was a letter. It would have been mailed or carried to somebody. That person in the Thessalonian church would have received it. They maybe would have held on to it until next Sunday, or maybe they would have called a church meeting. We've gotten a word from the Apostle Paul. He sent another letter, and then they would read it out loud for everybody in the church to hear. 
And I wonder if they get to the verse 10 and they're feeling good because Paul is praying for them night and day that he might come and see them again. But then he says to supply what is lacking in your faith. And I wonder if that stung a little bit. Because so far in this letter, he's just been encouraging them over and over and over. You're doing so great. You're doing everything that we modeled for you. You're doing so great. And I wonder if it stung to know that there were still some things that were lacking in their faith. There were still some lessons that they have to learn. For those of you who have been around church and faith for a long time, I wonder if it would sting you to hear someone say that there are still some things lacking about your faith or or my faith. But the truth is, just as the Thessalonians had things to learn, ways to grow, we have things to learn and we have ways to grow. Because dangerous and deadly are the shores of good enough. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Remember earlier he said Satan was blocking him and now he's asking God to clear the way. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. He mentioned this in chapter one that their love would be increasing. These are water words, increase, overflow. If you've, if you've ever had something in your house, overflow, you, you, you know exactly what it's talking about. Water is spreading to places that it had not previously been. And this is what he says is happening with their love. Their love is spreading places that their love had never been for each other, yes, and for everyone else. Uh, if you remember last week, I brought some charts with me and, and I'm stuck in a rut. So I, I brought some new charts with me. I was an economics major in college and we use line graphs all the time. Uh, so ideally, what Paul is saying is that the longer that you follow Christ, the assumption is you're going to grow in spiritual maturity, that your love would increase and increase and increase and increase as your faith increases. That's the ideal. That's what the Thessalonians are doing. But what I find happening to me sometimes, and I've noticed is a trend among other followers of Jesus is the exact opposite of that. The longer we're in the Christian faith, the longer we're in the church, actually the less and less and less and less we love people. Where at one time our circle of influence was huge and robust. The longer we're Christians, the less influential we are, the less loving we are. But Paul says, no, your love was increasing. In fact, your love was overflowing. Your love was going places that it had never been before. Verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. He says your love is increasing. Your love is increasing. It's getting bigger. Now I want you to live holy and blameless. And and how do we have holy and blameless lives? When God strengthens our heart. Holiness is not a costume that we can put on. It flows out of a work that God is doing in us, which brings us full circle to where we started. When Paul says that the word of God was at work among them. What is the word of God doing? It's transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. What does it do once we are in the kingdom of God? It sanctifies us. It makes us holy and blameless. 
Next week, we're going to start chapter 4. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul brings out a flamethrower. And so I'd encourage you to tune in next week. Let me pray for us as we continue to worship together. God, we bless you and we thank you. And we ask that you would let your word have its full effect in us. We embrace it, we submit to it, and we yield to it. God, have your way in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.